This is not available for Kojet credit. Welcome to the February JP Roundtable. This is our second attempt at uh, going hybrid, and uh, I think we may have worked out some of the kinks from the first time, so hopefully everything's going to go well. And uh, thank you for those who are in person. Thank you for those who are here virtually. And uh, the, the idea for this session came from Judge Williams. The Judge Williams. <laughs> There's only one. <laughs> right, that is why you are the. Uh, and so, uh, Gerald, why don't you just, uh, I'll let you go ahead and introduce Judge Polk and uh, explain why, why we invited him. Okay. Uh, judge Polk is a Superior Court judge who I have heard give other presentations, um, and I was very impressed uh, by those. Um, he, he gave a guardianship conservatorship presentation that uh, had Britney Spears's case as the backdrop, believe it or not. Um, and it was, I, I learned a lot. Yeah, I, I, I learned a lot during that presentation. And he's the presiding judge of the probate and mental health. I call them divisions, but I guess they're called departments now um, within Superior Court. And so I asked him to make a smart on probate issues that could potentially interact with justice court cases. We have a variety of situations where people are essentially doing a collateral attack on the superior court case by filing something in justice court. And the scenario that we're seeing more and more of are people that have, uh, there's a family members are disputing over ownership of a house after someone has died. and there are verbal promises to, you know, mom meant to leave the house to me and, you know, that, that sort of stuff. And I realized quickly that I don't even know how to approach the issues. I don't know what probate documents even look like. I can't tell if they're homemade or legitimate. And I can't um, really have an intelligent conversation with people because I don't even know the vocabulary or what the types of different types of duties and responsibilities that people have uh, within probate. And so I, uh, so it's my fault we're having this presentation today. Because <laughs> I, was, I was like, I need some help when I, when I get these cases. So thank you, Judge Polk, for coming. Thank you. All right, my, my pleasure to be here. Thank you all for inviting me. Uh, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go over uh, what I called a who's who of fiduciaries. So these are folks that maybe you'll encounter. My, my guess is you're more likely to encounter some than others, but I want you to be aware of the ones that you really shouldn't be encountering, who might be masquerading as having authority. And and the way I'm going to present it is, is for each fiduciary, and I've got, I don't know, what did I, what did I come up with? Six of them, six different types. Uh, I'll go over very briefly kind of what each person's or fiduciary's role is. Uh, whether it's a living person or a dead person, um, whether they manage a person or a property, 
um, what you should be looking for in terms of the source of their authority um, and kind of a general idea of what their powers are and also tell you whether this is something that is a court appointment, meaning superior court, or no, there's no court appointment. And so I'll go through those in uh, time for me. I take whatever questions, but also feel free to interrupt me as, as we go through by each fiduciary, maybe before I transition to the next one. So, uh, and, and I did this in sort of a weird order, just so you all know. I brought my, what I kind of affectionately call my Bible, which is Title 14, the world in which I live. And I, for the most part, am just going in the order in which these fiduciaries are, are described or, or I'll say described in Title 14. So it's not necessarily the most logical order. But the first one is probably the one you encounter the most, which is a personal representative. So number one, probably say the obvious, but, but a lot of uh, folks in the community don't understand the distinction. Uh, personal representative is for dead people only. There is no personal representative for a living person. So the first thing is, if, if somebody says I'm personal representative, then they should be personal representative for a dead person's estate. Um, a personal representative only manages the financial affairs of the estate, the property, the assets, including, by the way, the debts. That's the person um, we were having a conversation right before we got started about a claim against the deceased estate. Um, a personal representative must be appointed by the court. Um, I, I, I see it, and I would imagine you folks do a lot out there just in the community, lay people. I'm the personal representative of my mom's estate. Well, has the court appointed you? No, but I'm named in the will. That, that gives you a priority for appointment. That's all it is. Because the court can always say you're not qualified to serve. Someone can challenge you, say that will's not valid. Um, you could have a situation where somebody says, well, I'm a personal representative of my mom's estate because she told me so. Or because I'm the daughter or the son. <coughs> no, because there are people who by statute have equal priority. So for example, someone dies and they have five kids and no will. All five of those kids have equal priority for appointment. So it might be that, that the court appoints all five of them as co's. It might be that the court says, I'm going to appoint one over the other for various reasons. The bottom line is you are not personal representative until the court appoints you as personal representative. And uh, another point I'll make is the personal representative is the figurehead for the decedent's estate. An estate cannot be sued by the estate. I see it all the time, and I think my colleagues and I kind of let it slide when you see that you know, plaintiff versus a state of so-and-so. It's really plaintiff versus John Doe, personal representative of the estate, or John Doe versus the estate of dead person by and through personal representatives, the technically legal aspect. And uh, there's um, a statute. 1431, 02, or 03, or 04, it's one of those. Uh, it's actually in your in your materials that you were already given by Charlie today that, that says that, that you can't sue an estate except through the personal representative. Or, or an administration, administration of an estate is commenced upon the issuance of letters to the personal representative, which I guess is a good segue to the, to the other point I was going to make is you know that someone is personal representative when you see what we call letters. I don't know where they came up with the term. It's an archaic term. People always think of letters, you know, dear mom, I'm having fun at summer camp. That's not the kind of letters we're talking about. The letters is, is usually a one-page document. Occasionally, it spills onto page two. 
issued by, of all people, the clerk of the court, and it would be the clerk of the superior court, saying so-and-so is appointed as personal representative of this estate. If there are any restrictions on the powers of the personal representative, it has to be spelled out in those letters. The House is restricted. It's actually a common thing that we will do to minimize a bond requirement if bond is not waived in a will or by the beneficiaries of the estate. We have to require a bond for any assets that the personal representative has unfettered or unrestricted access to. So we might restrict real properties, and you may not sell or encumber the real property without prior court order. It's not seen so much in the deceased estate world as it is in conservatorships, which I'll get to in a few minutes here. You might ask, well, why can't I rely on a court order saying so-and-so is appointed as personal representative? And you might actually get someone saying, well, here's the court order. I'm going to tell you why that's not good enough. And it goes back to kind of that bond scenario. There are steps that occur between the time I in my courtroom bang my gavel. We don't really bang our gavels, but, you know, figuratively bang the gavel saying you are now appointed personal representative. And when those letters are issued, bond is probably the most common example. I might say you are appointed personal representative subject to you posting a bond in an amount sufficient to cover all the unrestricted assets. And so the letters are not supposed to be issued until that bond has been posted. And it's the clerk's job to make sure that that bond is posted. There are some other requirements that have to occur before those letters are issued, not in every case, but in most cases. There's something called an order to, I call it generically order to fiduciary, but there's a specific one for personal representative that specifically sets forth the personal representative's powers and duties in a summary form, which we like to do at the Superior Court because then if someone violates it, it becomes a contempt because it's actually in a court order as opposed to just in a statute. So that is required for most, but not all, personal representatives. The other requirement that has to be completed or satisfied before those letters are issued, but not before I make the appointment, is completion of training. So there's a probate rule that says if you are not a licensed fiduciary, because there are professional fiduciaries out there who are licensed by AOC, if you're not a public fiduciary, and every county has a public fiduciary, and if you are not a bank or trust company licensed to do business in Arizona, you have to complete training. It's a short training course. I think it's less than an hour, and it's done online, but you've got to complete and file the certificates. And so the clerk is supposed to, they don't always get it, but they're supposed to check to make sure all those steps are completed before those letters are issued. And for third parties, I don't think we all as judicial officers qualify as third parties, but I'm talking about banks or a buyer of a house, right? If I want to go buy a house from a personal representative and I go through a title company, they can rely on letters of personal representative that have been certified by the clerk of court within the last 60 days. And so if there's been some fraud or the personal representative has been removed, let's say within that 60 days, it doesn't matter for that third party, you know, bona fide purchaser for value kind of concepts. They can rely on those letters. So that would be my suggestion to you as kind of a guideline is 
don't add, make sure that you have, and this goes whenever I talk about letters uh, for personal representative, conservator, I would ask for a certified copy of the letters and make sure that certification seals within the last 60 days. Because you don't know if you're given copies of letters from 2005. First of all, my question is, has this state really been open for eight, you know, seven or eight years? Um, more likely than not, it's been closed, and this person doesn't have those powers anymore. But if you're looking at a certified copy, or heaven forbid, a non-certified copy, where there really could be some potential for fraud, um, we could remove that person. The person's powers could have expired, the estate could be closed. Um, so the only other option is I don't know if you all have access to ISIS and can take judicial notice of our files. That would be the, no, okay. So yeah, so I did. We have whatever's on the Superior Court clerks. We can get that minute entries through the public minute entry page. That's it. That's yeah, as close as we can get to your files. Okay, and that's that's not going to be the minute entries aren't going to help you. So I would ask them for a certified copy within six days. You're probably going to get some pushback because they're going to go, oh, now it's I got to go down to the clerk and pay whatever the certification fee is. These days, probably like twenty-six to thirty dollars. Um, but that's your safest bet to make sure they are who they say they are and they've got the authority. And I will try to remember to send Charlie to send all of you a, a sample of what the letters look like, just to give you a generic idea. Um, there's no prescribed form for them, so don't take it to the T, but it'll give you an idea. And when I say it's usually a one-page document, the reason it tends to spill onto the second page is before I can appoint someone as a fiduciary, they have to accept the appointment. I can't force anybody to serve as a personal representative. And some of the, the lawyers in town to have that acceptance, the written acceptance, as part of the letters. And so that's usually on page two or the bottom of page one, I hereby accept the appointment. Um, others, lawyers, or, and I forget how our self-service center forms are, they do the acceptance as a separate document. So uh, powers of a personal representative, those can be set forth in a person's will if they have a will, but there's also a statute that, set forth, that sets forth the powers. And it's broad, very, very broad. Generically, it is pretty much anything the dead person could have done with his or her own property, the personal representative. Okay, so now I'm going to go to the, the next type of fiduciary. Yeah. Oh, oh, I thought you were raising your hand this question. Okay. Are you going to go in later as, as to, because you said anything that they can do. The issue that we get all the time is that they want to sell it and kick out the brother who's living there. If, if the, if, so if the if the dead person was the owner of the property and had the legal authority to evict the tenant, the personal representative stands in the shoes of the dead person as the. As long as they actually have the letter, which I don't think I've ever, I mean. As long as they've been. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I know I've seen documents before i mean i'm glad we're doing this <laughs> i mean i've sent a lot just back to the probate court because i'm like i don't i can't make these decisions so thank you <laughs> and, and one of the conversations we have kind of before we got started off off the record so to speak that i'll, I'll, I'll share with everybody is um you know certainly the superior court and even within the probate case we see what i call non-probate actions we see evictions, we see medical malpractice, we see nursing home abuse cases, we see breach of contract. 
We get divorce cases and annulment cases filed under the probate case. Legally, that's fine. My thing, and I've been trying to preach this for the last five, six years to my colleagues and to the bar, frankly, is in Maricopa County, where we are so big and so siloed and have these different departments, we get so specialized. We're really, really good at what we do and not so good at what we don't do on a regular basis. My staff's really good. They've been trained in probate. They can handle probate stuff all day long. You throw an eviction case at my staff and, frankly, me, I'll pull the book. I can pull the book. I'll learn it. It'll take me some time. I'll call one of you. My staff's just going to be there. It's going to be swimming. And things like eviction cases that have time frames on them, the little bit that I know, it's been a while since I've done an eviction case, or what we see a lot of are default judgments. Somebody file a civil complaint. The defendant will default, and the plaintiff's lawyer will file an application for default in this probate case. We don't know how to do that in probate. Our court administration doesn't know how to do that. They don't track it. If they filed it as a separate civil action, they'd be golden because civil court admin is set up to monitor, to send it to one of our commissioners, keeps the wheels turning. Well, no, no, no. Right, but it's not that I want to send it. It's just for us it always comes across as an issue of title, right? Who has the legitimate right? Can the brother kick the other brother out? I mean, that's what I see more typically. I mean, it's not like we get them all the time, but it's the more typical case. And so then they don't want to leave because they've lived there for 20 years, and mom always let them live there for free, and so it turns into these family issues. And I've seen some of those because I've done settlement conference on things, one in particular where – They came from my courtroom. Yeah, mom, dad, whoever it was, let one child live in the house that parent owned. Parent is now deceased, and in the hypothetical I'm going to give you because I don't remember the specific facts of that case, let's say mom had five kids, and mom died intestate, so she didn't have a will. That means that each of those five kids get one-fifth of the estate. It doesn't have to be they each get a one-fifth interest in that house. If there's enough cash to equalize it, you could do it, but the reality is most of these cases they don't have it. So the personal representative's choice is, all right, if the house is the only asset, I'm just going to try to keep it simple, I've got a choice. I either devise this house or deed the house, do what we call a deed of distribution, saying each of us five kids now have a one-fifth interest in the house, or I sell the house, convert it to cash, and it's much easier to divide up $100,000 five ways than it is the house. So you would need to evict the one child who's living in the house. And they certainly have, from a Title 14 perspective, the legal authority to do that. But they would need to prove to you that they are really, in fact, the representative and the only one. Because in my scenario, going back to we got five kids in test state, so there's no will. All five of them had equal priority for appointments. So the question is, did the probate judge appoint all five of them as co, and you just have the one saying, well, I'm personal representative, and they're not telling you that there's actually another four of them that have equal authority? Or is that person, in fact, the sole personal representative? And did the court restrict the powers? Did I, as the probate judge, say I'm appointing you as personal representative, but you can't sell the house without court approval? 
Now, the selling it's different than the eviction, but. And that would be in the letters, right? That would be in the, in the letters, yep. So what I've seen is the landlord attorney coming in to, to sue the estate of, and it's the name of the deceased. And if anyone else appears, like that person can't appear, just sign the default judgment against the dead person, um, and then it'll just go against the estate. But we now know, since you spoke to Charles, that you can't do that, but there have been right. a couple, and you just think, Okay, I guess the dead person defaulted, but this doesn't seem quite right. <laughs> he just, but, and then and I guess that debt goes to the state. I don't know. <laughs> you can't default the dead person because they can't right. defend themselves. Right. And and um, on the on the issue of of the the rent, the money damages, because the eviction it's kind of moot, right? When they die, they're evicted. Um, is there's a process in the probate code when anyone has a claim against a deceased estate, anyone. They've got an option once a personal representative is appointed. That's the key thing, right? But once the personal representative is appointed, they can simply submit a, a, a written statement of the claim to the personal representative within a certain time period and, and say, hey, dead person owed me X number of dollars. This is what it was for, back rent for this period of time. Uh, and then the personal representative gets to decide whether to allow the claim or disallow it. Allowing it is just, yes, I determine this is a legitimate debt, and I'll pay it in due course, assuming there's enough money. And if there's not enough money in the estate, it becomes like a bankruptcy. It's very, uh, one of my former law partners was a bankruptcy attorney. We used to have these conversations. There's a lot of parallels in decedent estates because there's a priority for payment scheme. Uh, who you know, Different classes of creditors have different priorities. If the personal representative says, I'm disallowing the claim, I don't think this is a legitimate <coughs> debt, then the, the, the claimant, the creditor's um, next step is to either file a petition for allowance of claim, which can be done in the probate case, and that we know how to do, or they can file a civil claim. Or they can file a civil lawsuit. Um, I have to look, but I, I think that they probably could even do it in justice court if the amount was, was small enough, but they've got to name the personal representative. But there's time frames, and that gets to, I think, a really critical point. Whenever you're Hello. bringing a You hung up on me. <laughs> okay, so, someone on the phone needs to mute yourself. Are you busy? I think it's no. Jordan. Okay. I'm going to get... I mean, I would think that these are tenants that probably don't have an estate, right? I mean... I, and I think the landlords in general just want possession of the property. They don't care to collect the debt that they're going to collect two years from now. Um, if the person is dead, then they know, right, that it's empty and right. they have possession. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's a that's it's an interesting question, but <laughs> but they can't sue the estate without a personal representative, and that's like I say. So they can't they can't file for eviction at all, unless if there's but a I name. My, my question is, who are you evicting? Because the estate's a, 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 not a person. The estate's not in the The, the main the, process that you're saying is in eviction, we give possession, legal possession, back to the property owner within the five days. And without that eviction, they can't get the writ to get possession of their property. Well, and then the, person, and then the personal property that's left inside becomes an issue also. Yeah, the, well, the personal property would belong to the estate, and that's, yeah, they would. 
And so then there's still and then the, there's probably no personal representative. I mean, some, right, sometimes right. the daughter shows up and says, "Yeah, I'm the daughter. I'll clean out the apartment." They but, so here's another thing: is is a creditor, which would be the landlord, can actually seek to be appointed or can nominate a personal representative once 45 days have passed from death. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we do occasionally see that with other types of creditors who are owed money, where they'll come in and and they'll ask either for themselves to be appointed. Uh, personal representative, or they'll nominate someone else. It gets to be a little tricky because of conflicts of interest. Because if you're a personal representative, you owe a duty of undivided loyalty to all the beneficiaries of the estate, and so you, you can't put your individual interests ahead of the beneficiaries. Uh, and we see that where there's siblings, and one of them wants to do something for their own selfish interest that's adverse to the remainder siblings, and that's the the situation. And and I don't know if you remember the. The legislature a few years ago passed uh, a statute, <coughs> an issue with funeral homes. Um, you remember that? Mm -hmm. Because there were a few funeral homes that were, oh, they had, had a receivable basically, right? Because they did all this work to get the person, the decedent buried, and then to make a claim against the decedent's estate, they weren't getting paid. And I guess they weren't getting personal guarantees from the family. And uh, so they would go in and seek appointment as personal representative, get themselves appointed just to pay their own bill. And they were kind of judge, jury, and executioner, fox guard in the hen house, any of those you know, cliches that you want to use. Um, yeah, I, if it's just mere possession, go back to your question. I, I, I don't know, because the statute says you, you, you can't, the administration of the state has commenced on the issuance of letters. And you can't make a claim against an estate until until. So I, I want to say maybe they're like, well then let's just do a John Doe so that we can get possession. I feel like that's happened before. You know the same thing. I mean, I've had landlords request that where they'll say, I just want a possession only judgment. So we're not suing anybody. We just want possession. So just put it as a John Doe, and we can have possession in five days. Yeah, I'd still be asking the questions. Do you know like how how much in the time wise? How how long have the tenants typically been in default? And were they in default before they died, or is it a default because they died? Usually, when we when when it's a conflict case like this, it's because they're in default because they died. Um, but they can, I mean, the landlord can come to us within 20 days. I mean, the timelines are very, very quick. But, but the defaults usually... And because they don't have to personally serve, they can just certify letter to the address saying you haven't paid your rent and then post and mail the notice for court. And so in, in the end, it's just a legal farce because and they know that no one's getting it. And it has to be cases where they don't have anybody that they can contact. Because generally, if someone dies, someone they're cleaning out the the house for them because we don't get a ton of them and i'm sure people are dying <laughs> but we only get the ones where they don't know what to do because the person died and they don't know what are we going to do with like we don't know who well, to contact with anybody we've actually had cases though where one of the spouses dies and the other remains and then they can't pay the rent because they don't have they're enough the and they're not on the line the person on the lease who's the dead one. But then isn't the spouse just automatically the personal <laughs> no, no letters. No letters. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
even in a community property state. Huh? Yeah, and because and 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 one of the things too is just the relationship doesn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. I could I could execute a will today that says I'm nominating anyone I want other than my spouse. I don't have to pick my spouse to be my personal representative. I, I, I could, if I had a mistress, I could pick my mistress. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, could, I could, you know, I could pick one of my kids. I could pick a friend. I believe that I was could... a Dunk Nappy episode about that. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was the movie. Yeah. <laughs> what if I'm legally separated? Or not legally separated, just physically separated. And so, and, and you know, I talked before about priority. The person who has priority, the top priority, is the person named in the, the will, nominated in the will. If there is no will, then it, then there's that pecking order that yes, the spouse has priority. But there's, I mean, we get all kinds of situations where we may not appoint the spouse because it, in an intestate situation where the decedent didn't have a will and has children who aren't also children of the surviving spouse, those children are heirs, well, along with the spouse. And they're gonna get divided among them half of the estate, and the spouse is gonna, well, simplify it. Don't, don't take that as quite gospel. But, and so there, there may be such friction between the kids from the prior relationship and the surviving spouse, and I'm not appointing the surviving spouse, I'm appointing the kids. We get situations where the marriage is suspect. Remember I told you we get those uh, annulment cases where it's kind of the, uh, what would people call it, a gold digger situation or taking advantage late in life for that very purpose and the whole validity of the marriage becomes in question. So yes, yeah, so you can't assume just because they're the spouse. So probate isn't as boring as it sounds. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been for 30 years. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because I, my, I, my career started off, I'm getting way off on tangent. My career started off as a bailiff at the Superior Court, and the judge I, who hired me was presiding civil at the time. And then about two, three months in, he got rotated to probate. And his JA and his clerk and his court reporter and I are all looking at each other. How boring. That's where people go and they die. It's boring and boring. And I was there for a year. I said, wow, this is way more than what people think it is. And it's it's complex and it's very, very, very nuanced. And, and actually, we should have known that it's not boring because, and, and mostly we're talking about the context of evictions, but it also comes into play with orders of protection when we start to get an elderly parent and the children start fighting and they come in to get an order of protection against the other siblings so they can't contact the dying parent so they get a leg up in the probate process so you know if you want to touch on that yeah, so, so actually that's it let me let me go ahead and segue to 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 the next type of future which may be a good uh, perfect segue so the next on my list is a guardian so guardian is appointing appointed only for a living person we don't have guardians of dead people as soon as uh, the the ward that's the person for whom the guardian is appointed is, is dead the guardian loses all authority as a matter of law done as soon as the death happens um, we have guardians for adults we have guardians for minors now most people think that a parent a, a natural or biological parent is the natural guardian for their for their minor child and that's probably true i'm focusing the conversation on on adults um, uh, it, the guardian only deals with the ward's person, physical body. So things such as healthcare, 
placement, you know, where are you going to live? Is it a nursing home, assisted living in your own home? Uh, education, those kinds of things. It is typically not money. The word typically is the key phrase there. Sometimes guardians can deal with money if there's not a conservator appointed and the sums are relatively small. Guardian is always appointed by the court, just like a personal representative. Don't let someone fool you and say, I'm my mom, I am my mom or my dad's guardian because I was named as guardian in a document. So you're gonna look for letters of guardian or letters of guardianship. Same as personal representative, they are issued by the clerk of court. The court, the, the judge makes the appointment in an order. The training from the folks who have to go through training occurs. We usually don't have bond requirements and then the letters are issued by the clerk. And again, you wanna look for a certified copy. Um, and the powers are set forth in statute. The court can limit the powers. They're very rarely limited. So going to, the, to, to Charlie's point, there is a statute, ARS section 1453-16. Uh, it's only been on the books now for maybe nine, 10 years. It's very specific about a guardian's obligation to allow contact. And that's the word that we use, contact. We try to avoid using visitation. So contact is broad. <laughs> Contact can mean everything from literally physical contact or, or what most people think of as visitation to electronic communications, email, Snapchat, whatever, and everything in between, phone, video, et, et cetera. And the statute says that the, that the guardian has an obligation to allow contact between the ward and persons who have a significant relationship with the ward. I was one of the drafters of the statute, we couldn't define it. It was one of those significant relationships. We know when we see it, it's gonna be a question of, of, of fact. Um, the guardian though has the authority if the guardian reasonably believes that the contact would be uh, detrimental to the ward's best interest to prevent the contact. You all should never be getting involved in that kind of a, 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 a fight. Um, I'm just kind of giving you the, the, the lay of the land. And so the, the, the challenge is that there are scenarios that come up every day where someone who does have a significant, significant relationship, be it a spouse, a child, a grandchild, their contact is detrimental, maybe because they're trying to financially take advantage of the ward by having the ward sign a power of attorney or sign a check or give over property or sign a will that's gonna leave everything. Um, so, uh, and, and sometimes just with particularly with people with dementia, um, they, they get triggers, right, that, that upset them. And so maybe it's a certain person. If there's a dispute, then it should be coming to us in the guardianship case. And the person who has been denied contact has the ability to go and petition the court for um, a contact order. Maybe for your purposes, what might be helpful to know is we, there's one other lawyer and I who helped write this statute. We modeled it very loosely on the um, statutes in Title 25 dealing with child custody and, and visitation with minor children. So there's- What's that statute? Uh, 1453-16. Is the statute, and it lays out in detail the procedure to get one of these contact orders, and so, so on and so, and so forth. So, 
I believe it's been a while since I've looked at the OOP statutes, but I'm pretty sure that a guardian has the ability to go in and ask for an OOP for the various board. That was my question. So if, if a person comes to court asking for an order of protection against a uh, relative of the uh, dependent person, then we have to make sure they have the legal authority uh, in, primarily in writing before we can actually deal with them the representing the, the ward. The letters of guardian. You're gonna right. want those letters of guardian. And again, I would ask for a certified copy so if they show up and say, let me answer that question. Sure. Um, no, uh, for other parties coming in and requesting it on their behalf, you just have to ensure that it's appropriate. Uh, it doesn't, they don't have to be a specific guardian. It's probably best practice now looking at 1453.16, where we think it's clearly being done uh, to gain some advantage uh, in, in the eventual probate, um, but it's not required by the Arizona Rules of Protective Order Procedure. Okay. Can, it, it can be any, anyone? Yes, you can come in and request for a third party. Now, you should be mm -hmm. questioning why that person isn't in there asking for it themselves. But we get this. For those of us whose courts are next to Sun City, um, we get this every month. Um, and, and it's usually an adult child seeking to protect their parent against other members of their family. Right. And it, it comes to us in an elder abuse context. There's no um, probate, active probate case going on uh, usually. Um, and what, what comes to us is um, this, caregiver, this caregiver taking advantage of my mom, my good-for-nothing brother, you know, got out of prison and he's moved in and he's taking care of my mom, you know, and he won't let her talk to anybody on the phone. So we need to get my mom away from the brother or the brother away from the mom. And you're saying that we shouldn't really be engaged in those cases or what? I, I wasn't aware that someone who's not a legal guardian can do that for another adult. So well, I, 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 I've known about this statute for 45 seconds, so. Um, so. <laughs> so, so the, well, the statute, I'm saying that, that deals with when there's an existing guardianship in place. Okay. Okay. And, and so I, I think maybe that's the first question I would be asking is if someone comes in and say, I want an order of protection or injunction against harassment, or I'm, I'm doing this on behalf of an adult, some other adult, then my first question would be, gee, is there a guardianship in place for this other adult? Mm -hmm. And if so, who's the guardian? And they say, I am, I might want proof just to test their credibility. Right, how did, how did you get to that point? Who are you? How did you get to be the guardian? And then the next question would be, is there a contact order? Has, has, has the court in the guardianship case made any orders regarding contact, either pro or con. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, I could see, boy, what a horrific situation. I, in the probate case, say, after a full trial and it's all litigated, say, guardian, you must allow person X to have contact with the ward, whatever that contact is. And then the guardian doesn't like my ruling, so they come running to you and ask for an order of protection. And Judge, I, I put up rule, uh, RPOP Rule 5 there, and what it does say is for 4A, if there is a guardian, then that is the person who's supposed to do it. 
Um, but then B says, you know, is the situation where there isn't a guardian and you're, they're going to claim that the person, uh, that's why they're there on that person's behalf. So, you know, yeah, we need to be asking under A if there already is a guardian, but then under B. Wait, wait, this, is that a that's A is only with a minor, right? Are you looking at you're looking at A or oh. A? No, right, right. So then B That's... would qualify for any elderly. Yeah. We'd have to look at thirteen thirty six of two A and twelve eighteen oh nine A to see who's an appropriate party. I don't understand why they don't have hyperlinks on, on the one that they send you to another. Judge, I have a question. Under the, the statute that you're, you talked about, how intense is the procedure for that person to, to become a guardian? In other words, can they show up, like people show up in justice court and get what they want usually within an hour? What is the procedure? as far as like, I want to show up and be a guardian for somebody. So, so the, the, the process, um, and this is going to apply to a conservatorship, it's going to apply to being a personal representative as well. It all starts typically, well, I, I paused for a second, because for a personal representative, there's two different methods. Typically, it starts with filing a petition. And we set what we call an initial hearing on that petition by law unless there's some exigent circumstance, we, the petitioner has to give at least 14, 14 days advance notice to certain classes of individuals. And it, it varies for a personal representative, it, it's different than for a guardian or conservator. Uh, the time frame is also different. So let me focus in on guardianship since that's what you asked. For a guardianship, because a guardianship is an infringement on somebody's liberty. So I, I forgot to mention, the guardian's powers, when we appoint a guardian for someone, unless we specifically limit it, a guardian of an adult has all the powers over the ward that, an un, that the parent, a parent has over that parent's unemancipated minor child. So if I were my dad's guardian, I can do everything my dad could have done for me when I was a minor, <laughs> which is pretty darn broad when you think about it. And so, because it's such a fundamental, uh, it's such a huge infringement on somebody's fundamental liberty, the law requires us to do appoint counsel for the, the person for whom the guardianship is sought. Um, we typically, for guardianships, require a medical report from either a registered nurse, a psychologist, or an MD. And we have in Maricopa County, other counties are a little different. We have on-staff investigators, full-time court employees, who go and conduct investigations. Now, the investigation consists usually of going out and meeting with the ward where the ward lives, talking to the ward, um, meeting with the proposed guardian. And because there's all that legwork, right, the, the court-appointed lawyer has to meet with the client, our investigators take time, typically it's about a 45-day process from the time the petition is filed until that initial hearing. And then most of the cases are uncontested. And that initial hearing lasts 10, 15 minutes. We swear uh, in the petitioner, who's usually the person who's being nominated. And the, 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 I look at court point counsel, I said, does your client have any uh, objection? And is there anybody else in the room here to object? The answer is no. I get the testimony from the nominee. Do you understand the, the powers you're going to have and the duties? Yes. OK, I'm appointing. 
On those cases, the minority cases where they're litigated, it can take months because it becomes your standard family court litigation, right? But it's a different dynamic. Instead of mom and dad fighting over a kid, it's kids fighting over mom, dad, grandparent. Um, there is a process where if there is an emer a true emergency, someone can come in and get appointed as temporary guardian or temporary conservator the same day. And they can do it without notice if, if there's gonna be irreparable harm. Which is probably then preferable to a two-year order of protection. Oh, yeah. And we do have a question uh, from Judge Kissel. Judge Kissel, you're muted. Oh, no, you're not, okay. We don't hear you. Well, maybe if you want to type it, because you're, you're not oh, speaking. He, he did type it. He said, is there a location we can search for those guardian proceedings? So the Superior, Superior Court's website, I believe the docket is still public record. But you won't be able to pull down all the individual documents that are on file. And I think the minute entries are not public anymore. And then you had a question? Yeah. What are the... I guess the definitions and parameters between the guardianship and the conservatorship. So, thank you. So now we'll talk about conservatorship. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're peeking over my shoulder, like in my outline. So, like a guardian, a conservator serves for a living person. There's a little bit of a wrinkle when the so a person, <clears throat> a person for whom the conservator is appointed. We typically refer to it as the protected person, not the ward. It's a term of art, although people will use ward. Um, I like to use the term subject person. We put in the probate rules as generic. It covers a decedent, a ward, or a protected person. So the wrinkle is for a conservatorship, when the protected person dies, the conservator's appointment is not automatically terminated. And I'll explain why in a second. So conservator manages property, assets, debts, and so forth and has nothing to do with where the person lives, the kind of medical treatment, although you can get into an interesting situation. Yeah, typically, the same person will serve as both guardian and conservator if both are needed. And by the way, we don't always need both. So I'll give you, I'll try to give you a couple of examples. One is we see a lot of cases these days with young adults with developmental disabilities, people on the autism spectrum, Down syndrome, mental retardation, those kind of things. And so they don't have any assets. They get Social Security. We don't appoint conservators for Social Security income because it's so small. Um, and so those are typical guardianship-only cases. But I mean, those are also typically cases where we can, can see parents fighting over who's going to be guardian for their kid when those parents are no longer married or were never married. So if they had a big fight in family court, they're probably going to have a big fight in front of us. And we try to do things to mitigate that. Um, there are cases where we would might have a conservator but no guardian, and that's with uh, typically, I hate to be ageist, but elderly folks, whatever we all think, you know, the older I get, the older comes, right? Um, but for, for older folks, maybe folks suffering from dementia or Parkinson's or, or something like that, um, there could be a stage where they need a conservator but not a guardian. The legal standards are, are very different to appoint a guardian for someone, it requires number one, clear and convincing evidence. For a conservator right now, it's preponderance of the evidence. It's a lower evidentiary burden. 
For a guardianship, the evidence is that the person is unable to make or communicate responsible decisions concerning their person. That they're not capable of processing healthcare decisions, finding a place to live, those kinds of things. Conservatorship, the standard is that the person's not able to effectively manage his or her own financial affairs. I'm oversimplifying it. There's some other, again, nuances and other criteria, but that's the big picture difference. So during my career, I've seen plenty of instances where someone is capable of making medical decisions for themselves, living independently, but they can't handle their financial affairs. They're not capable. They become very susceptible to being unduly influenced or financially exploited. exploited. So we might appoint a conservator, but but not a guardian. Okay. So so, so the conservator, I want not forget. So the conservator's appointment doesn't terminate by operation of law because the conservator is holding these assets. And when the protected person dies, what happens to those assets? The conservator has responsibility until those assets are transferred to. The personal representative of the deceased estate, or there is a process by which the conservator can be granted the powers of a personal representative and can administer the estate, retaining they retain the title conservator. It's in name only. They really function as a personal representative at that point. It's not it's not automatic. Um, conservator, like a guardian and personal representative, only appointed by a court. So if someone says, "I'm conservator." Your question, show me your letters, because it's the same thing. You're looking for letters of appointment that may contain any or will contain any restrictions on authority and the powers of a conservator, unless the court is limited, are like a personal representative. Anything that the protected person can do, the conservator can do, absent court limitation. And in fact, for your purposes dealing, I don't know if you see evictions where a conservator is trying to evict someone, the statute says, that the appointment of a conservator, uh, the recording of the letters of appointment, because the, all these fiduciaries, they, all the fiduciaries dealing with property should be recording their letters. Um, evidence is the transfer of legal title, legal title to any property from the protected person or the decedent to the conservator or the personal representative. And it's but, for the benefit of someone else. And these so letters could, in theory, be a lot older. Correct. Version of these letters yeah. would be more likely to be acceptable. Okay. So, well, I'll, I'll qualify and say the the date of appointment could be older, but from your standpoint, I would still want to see a certified copy within the last 60 days because you don't know whether I've removed that conservator because conservators, this could shock you, people steal. There are dishonest people out there, including people we appoint as fiduciaries. Uh, and I, tell you war story after war story of fiduciaries whom we've removed. And so again, you wouldn't know that uh, if you were given the, the letters that were certified or a conformed copy that's not certified, uh, you, and you wouldn't necessarily know it from looking at the docket or, or a minute entry. And, and this might be next on your outline, but what about when someone shows up and says, but your honor, I have a power of attorney. Right. <laughs> Seriously, you're looking at my outline. <laughs> it's, it's really next. It really is next. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so there's there's two kinds of, of powers of attorney that I want you to be aware of. One is um, what statutorily is, is just referred to as a power of attorney. I always like to add the financial descriptor because that's really what it is. 
Um, and then the healthcare power of attorney. So I'll start with the financial power of attorney. Um, it is for a living adult, it, never for a minor, uh, and it's got to be someone who's living. Once they, so the, the person who acts, the fiduciary is called an agent. Uh, you'll hear the term uh, attorney in fact use all the time. Sure, that works, but statutorily the term is agent. The person who's giving the power of attorney is called the principal. So powers of attorney lose their effectiveness as soon as the principal dies. Again, there's a lot of people out there think, oh, I can continue to act after the principal is alive. No, you cannot. The qualifier on that is that the agent actually has to be informed that the principal is dead, right? So if, if the agent knows the principal is dead, then their appointment is, is, is terminated. Um, uh, I said it can't be for a minor. Um, when we're dealing with financial powers of attorney, it is only obviously for financial stuff. Um, it does not require court involved. People do powers of attorney often to avoid a conservatorship and getting the court involved. Uh, it's, it's based on the written document itself. So for your purposes, if someone comes in and says, I'm agent under the power of attorney, you want to see that power of attorney. And you need to read it carefully because powers of attorney can be written as narrowly or as broadly as the principal wants. Real life example, um, when my wife and I were buying our first house decades ago, um, we were in escrow set to close and my mother-in-law passed away and we had to go back to Chicago for the funeral and I didn't want to hold up the closing so we gave my dad a limited power of attorney that was limited in scope to him signing all the documents necessary to complete the sale that didn't allow him access to our bank accounts or credit card accounts. It was, it was very narrow and it was limited in time, which I guess leads to my, to my next point. Powers of attorney, financial powers of attorney can either be springing or effective immediately. So effective immediately means by the very language, it's effective the date the principal signs it. Springing is only effective when the principal becomes disabled. And you will have to read the power of attorney to see the language that looks, the language for springing will say something like, this becomes effective upon my disability. This power of attorney becomes effective on my disability. The, you may not see any language that says this is effective immediately. You may have to kind of infer from lack of upon, upon my disability, which leads me to another important distinction. Old, old common law, you know, hundreds of years ago before we were all born, um, said that a, when a, uh, someone gave a power of attorney, the agent could only do those things that the principal was capable of doing. So somewhere along the line, I suppose some judge or somebody said, oh, the principal is disabled now and unable to make decisions. Well, because the principal can't do it, the agent can't do it. And so powers of attorney used to stop being, they, they ceased being effective upon the principal's disability. We now have by statute, as opposed to common law, what we call durable powers of attorney. In fact, that's the statutes that we have. It's 1450, at SEC. And, and they, they talk about creation of a durable power of attorney that survives the principal's disability. And that's what prescribes, and I, I forget off the top of my head, how many witnesses you have to have, whether it's gotta be notarized. And 
most importantly, I think it's got to have that language in there that says this survives my disability. That springing language would work. This shall become effective upon my disabilities. Same thing. But it's got to be clear to you that the agent has authority to act when the principal is disabled. Uh, and then I, I just wrote down in my in my notes to myself, you know, the, one of the concerns I always have, uh, and Ken jokingly said earlier, I've learned to trust no one. It's the old kind of Ronald Reagan trust but verify uh, thing that my dad ingrained in me. It, it is when you're dealing with a privately executed document, gee, is number one, you want to check to make sure it meets the execution requirements. This, it does it have the right number of witnesses? Uh, is, is it notarized? Um, who can be a witness? Because I think there's limitations on who can be a witness, et cetera. Um, and by the way, if the document was executed in Arizona, that's going to be really easy for you. If it was executed in another state, the problem is we honor states that were validly executed in other states, even if it doesn't meet our requirements, if it met the requirements of the other state. So you may have to start researching other state power of attorney laws. But then beyond the, the, the bare looking at the documents, because that we can all look at and tell, it's the stuff behind the document. Was there undue influence in procuring this? Gee, when the principal executed it, did they actually have capacity or did they think they were living on Mars and the Martians told them to sign it? Uh, was there fraud involved? Uh, and we see those a lot when we are asked to appoint a guardian or a conservator uh, and somebody says, well, but wait, you don't need a conservator. I've got power of attorney for mom. And the other kid says, yeah, mom already was in late stages. Alzheimer's didn't know what she was signing, or you coerced her, or you unduly influenced her. And then we get into all those kind of disputes. So to, to, to recap, I could actually very easily see you ending up having someone come in on an eviction saying, I'm agent under power of attorney for dad. Dad owns this house, and I want to evict whomever, maybe my sister, my brother. Second kind of power of attorney to be aware of our health care powers of attorney. So everything I've talked about resides in Title 14. Everything I, up till now resides in Title 14. I told you guys, presenting it in the order in which Title 14 covers it. I'm now going out of order to keep the powers of attorney together. Health care powers of attorney are covered in Title 36, Chapter 32. Healthcare power of attorney is where an adult, again, it's only an adult, can appoint some other adult to make healthcare decisions, hence limited to healthcare. Healthcare is not really defined. I've seen litigation over does healthcare include placement in a nursing home or skilled nursing or at home? I don't, I don't know really. Um, but it's, it's healthcare decisions for another adult. These are springing only. By statute, when you read the statute carefully, it's only effective when the principal can't make those decisions for himself or herself. So they are, they are only uh, springing and they are only durable. They are by their very nature um, uh, effective only upon disability. Um, look at the document to, and there's no, I'm sorry, I'm going out of order. There's no court involvement. We don't get involved in these. We don't create them. We don't appoint people as agents. Um, you're going to look at the written healthcare power of attorney. There's tons of forms out there. Anybody in this room who has, in the last 20 years, maybe longer, undergone a medical procedure, might get where they're putting you under anesthesia. And I think even outpatient now it's common. 
you're going to ask, do you have a health care power of attorney? Do you want to sign them? All the hospitals, certainly if you're inpatient, they all have these forms. Um, and, and there's a statutory form, by the way, built into the statute. Uh, it's not mandatory, but it's, it's there. And you, you can list the powers, but the powers generically are pretty simple. You know, make health care decisions. Health care powers of attorney are often executed with a document called a living will. The living will is the document in which I say what I want to have happen. It's the, to, to, to be kind of crude, pull the plug on me, don't pull the plug on me. Uh, but it can be much broader than that. I once worked with a lawyer who said he had a client who would put in the power of attorney. I want a, if I'm in a hospital, I want a single room, not a double. Uh, I want a pair of sunglasses. It just kind of really, really weird stuff, but it was creature comfort. If you put anything in your living will you want. Living will can be a separate document, or it can be a combined living will health care power of attorney. I, I don't see you all getting involved in those health care powers of attorney. I, I'm not even sure that that would really apply to the order of protection scenario, because I can't see how an order of protection qualifies as health care. It, it could be under that third party, any third party, but I, I don't think being an agent under health care get, gets you there. I think being a child might get you there or whatever. I would like to go back to something that you said, and, and maybe you must heard what you said, but you're talking about a power of attorney where someone would then go in and be, and be a plaintiff in an eviction action. Um, we get a lot of, of people saying, oh, no, I'm not the property owner, but I have a power of an attorney from the property owner. Therefore, I'm going to represent the, the person. And uh, my initial standard response is, well, being a power of attorney doesn't give you the authority to be someone's attorney in court. If it did, no one would go to law school, you know, and everyone would just sign powers of attorney for everybody. Um, how does that really, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to sign legal documents for someone. It's another thing to actually appear in court on behalf of someone. And our, oddly, our next presentation is who can appear for what, in what context, but how do you analyze those situations? That's a great question. If, if I had an agent under power of attorney showing up in my courtroom, Superior Court, I would say you can't self-represent yourself. You, you're, you're acting in a fiduciary capacity. You have to have an attorney representing you. Uh, yeah, and I guess the same thing would apply in Justice Court, come to think of it. Because they're, they're not acting... So they, they have the legal authority, that power of attorney would give them the legal authority to act as the client, but not in a legal representation as an attorney. And that's why I, I hate using that term, attorney, in fact, because it's really confusing. No, you're the, the, the agent. It, 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 to me, it's no different than if they're the conservator. If okay. you're the conservator for someone. Because there are a lot of out-of-state landlords that don't want to travel back to, well, now they can appear remotely, but um, for whatever reason, they want to sign a power of attorney to somebody else to go evict their tenants. And I'm like, no, you have to actually hire an attorney. You can't hire, you can't do a power of attorney to your property manager to appear in court on your behalf. And I, I don't know if that analysis is right or wrong or. Um, I, you know what, I'd have to look because the Supreme Court rule, what's. I know that there have been some amendments and, and I know in the in, in the probate world 
There were carve-outs for the licensed fiduciaries because they're typically corporations too, which can't represent themselves. And we didn't want to cause undue expense. So we said, well, you can file certain things that are going to be non-controversial. Like guardians have to file annual reports. So we said, you don't need to have an attorney to file that. But if it's a litigation, we want you to have an attorney. And I, I just don't, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I'd, I'd have to kind of look at Rule 31 and, and see what it says. I mean, I had the same question, but piggybacking on that, and that you talked about Rule 31, we did not use to allow anyone to appear on behalf of a trust. We used to tell them they needed an attorney. But now Rule 31 appears to say, yes, someone can appear on behalf of the trust. I can't think you read my outline. because Oh, all sorry. <laughs> that was literally the well, last I thing mean, that I had. Okay, good. I will seat. say, though, that you understood so, what we needed. So, yeah. so that's very appreciated. So I, I, don't have the answer, I don't have the answer as to whether a trustee needs uh, an attorney. I hadn't really thought about the representation by an attorney in court issue, which is a Rule 31 issue. Um, so I'm going to go back to kind of my modus operandi okay, in terms of no, 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 no need to apologize. But, but so what I was going to share with you about a trustee is uh, a, a, a trustee. This is kind of really the oddball fiduciary in this whole thing. And I, I was trying to keep all my parallels and I couldn't. So the best I could come up with with my bullet point A is a trustee is, is established or appointed for the benefit of living beneficiaries who can be the person who created the trust, but doesn't have to be. So common scenario is uh, my wife and I, probably the most common, I, she and I create a trust. We put our, our assets into the trust and um, we are the beneficiaries of the trust during our lifetime. We're probably the trustees. When we're both dead, it, the trust is for the benefit of our kids. And the, the terms of, and we can spend a whole nother hour plus talking about trust because People do trust for a variety of reasons. One is to what we call postpone enjoyment. You know, I don't want my kids to get the property. First of all, kids are a minor. You can't give property to kids, so they do it to avoid a conservatorship. It also could be, um, I'm going to fantasize for a, for a minute and imagine I'm a multi-billionaire, and uh, I don't want my 18-year-old to inherit a, a billion dollars uh, and go out and spend it on, on all kinds of stuff, the 18-year-old. You know, males tend to spend their money on uh, being sexist, having been an 18-year-old male, but not, <laughs> not frivolously spent, but having had friends, uh, throw friends under the bus, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, and and so you know, parents will do things like, all right, uh, when I die, my kid gets the income from the trust, but not the principal. When the kid turns, picking the number 25, they can get. 10% when they turn 30, they can get another 10% when they turn, you know, and when they're 50. I, I've seen intergenerational trusts where the kids don't get anything other than income and it goes to the grandkids. I've seen lawyers in town who do what they call dynasty trusts, which are intended to really delay and, and you know, the great great grandchildren and preserve family wealth. So there's, like I say, there's a whole bunch of different scenarios on that. The key, I think, for your purpose is. The person who's in charge is called a trustee. There can, can be a co-trustee. By the way, any of these fiduciaries, there can be co There can be co You can tell a lot about somebody by the <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, You 
you can have co-personal representatives, you can have co-guardians, co-conservators, uh, you can have co-agents of their powers of attorney, and you certainly can have co-trustees. And so um, the trustee holds legal title, and maybe this is the important, most important part for you all. The trustee holds legal title to any trust that's been placed in the property for the benefit of the beneficiary. And so the trustee is the property owner. Um, for, for your purposes, you get someone who comes in there, and, I'll, and I'm assuming it's more on the landlord end, and says, I'm the trustee, I own this apartment, and I want to evict someone. So what I'm going to look at is, all right, well, how do I know your trustee? That's number one. Um, and so they can do that by giving you the, the trust, and you could swear them in and take testimony to make sure that, okay, exhibit A is, in fact, the most recent trust. One of the things you want to watch out for and always ask about is, have there been any trust amendments or what we call restatements? If you hear <coughs> the term restatement, so what that means is an amendment is uh, someone who's the creator of a trust can amend certain portions of the trust. They could be the provision dealing with the trustee, it could be the provision dealing with um, who the beneficiaries are, it could be any, anything. Sometimes, particularly estate planning lawyers will say, we're making so many amendments, we're making so many parts, it would be terribly confusing for someone to look at the last three amendments and try to match it up with the original trust document. So we're going to do what's called a restatement, where we literally write out the whole trust all over again with the amendments <laughs> included. So it's um, uh, what's, what's the engrossed? Yeah. That's yeah. That's the word I was looking for. It's the engrossed document. It's showing all the all the changes at once. So you're going to want to ask, are there, have there been any amendments and restatements? I want to see them. I would swear them in, so I'm getting testimonies. It's under penalty of perjury. Um, there is something called a certification of trust. The statute is 1411013. So it's 14-11013. And I'll send Charlie my outline, which does have that statutory citation in it. Um, and what I really want to do is kind of fill in my notes a little bit with some statutes for you, so I probably won't have this done today. Um, where it, it, it's intended so that trustees don't have to put the whole trust in the public record. So one of the things is when a trustee goes to sell property, the title company, like you, is going to want some proof that they are entitled to sell the property, that they will title. So instead of having to record the whole big, you know, 50-page trust document, this law allows them to record uh, I think it's a notarized document. I, I can't remember the, the formalities requirements, but something that says who the trustee is and basically trying to prevent fraud. So you might be presented with a certification of, of, of trust, and it's going to set forth the powers. So there's a, this, a statute that lists the powers of a trustee by default. The, the person who creates the trust can limit or expand the scope of those powers, but the vast majority of cases, it's anything I could have done with my property. What you've got to watch out for, and trusts are effective upon the signing of the trust, uh, unless it's a testamentary trust which comes about in a will, but let's not get into that today. That's um, at the 80% of the cases. Trusts become effective when they're signed and when property is funded into the trust. So here's another thing to watch out for. I sign my trust agreement today, I, I nominate or, or appoint, because courts don't get involved in trusts usually, unless there's litigation over the validity of the trust or, or, or removal of a trustee. So I say, I, I've got so-and-so as a trustee. 
Okay. And I stopped there. How do you know that my house or my rental property is in the trust? You, you, you don't. And even if in the trust I say I'm putting my rental house in there, that's not a legal conveyance. For your purpose of dealing with real property, there's, I've got to actually record a deed that says I'm conveying my house to you know person A as trustee of the J.M. Polk Revocable Trust. And so that you can search public record on. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know. Um, would that be just through that the county recorder's public yeah. registry? Yeah. But does that change if the if the creator of the trust is dead or not? I so, mean, I, I could understand that the trustee can't represent the trust if if. So trust survived death. Right. So tr trust is its own legal entity. Sort of like a corporation, so and, it only, and it can only act through the trustee. And and so, so scenario number one is best case scenario. I've got a good estate planning lawyer. I know what I'm doing. I sign my trust. It's 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 a, what we call a, an inter vivos or lifetime trust. And I actually go and record a deed saying I J Polk convey Black Acre to Charlie is trustee of my trust. He's now trustee, he's in charge. I die, it doesn't matter. Because my property, I've given up the legal right to my property. But so that but that, so that allows so him to collect rent. Allows him to collect, yeah. He, so then he can he come can, to court to collect, collect the rent. He can collect rent, he can evict, he can sell. He is now the legal owner. The only difference between him and any other legal owner is he owes me as the beneficiary of the trust while I'm alive a fiduciary duty to do what's in my best interest. But that's not your concern, because if I think he's doing something wrong, like if he were to go sell the property for less than fair market value, I'd sue him in superior court for breach of fiduciary yeah. duty. And I just don't see how, maybe we should just require that they have attorney. <laughs> <laughs> uh, along that same line, then, if they have a trust in place and they have their trustees designated, or especially if they're still living in the and the trust says upon my death that they are then the trustees, does, does the deed to the property have to be recorded to an individual name or can it just be to the trust it, or the trustee? It, it should be to the trustee. It should be to the trustee, but I, I'm... I would worry about it a lot less if, okay, so if I, the scenario is, let me give you the hypothetical I think gets to your question. I create a trust during my lifetime, and I'm the trustee during my lifetime, and I record the deed that says, I.J. Polk individually convey Black Acre to J. Polk as a trustee. My trust is when I die, Charlie's my successor trustee. I. I'm now dead, and he's coming into your court saying he wants to, to evict whoever the tenant is or collect the back rent. That's the scenario you're asking about. I wouldn't be too concerned because, like, about there not being the chain of title as long as he shows you my death certificate, maybe, um, <laughs> this certificate of trust that says he's taken over as trustee. As long as the, the trust is... 
as long as it's funded. So, yeah. yes, because here's here's the problem that we see a lot is that, and when I say we, I mean we in the probate community, on the bench, and, and, and as lawyers, people don't fund their trusts. They create their trust and they don't retitle their property. It's easy with tangible personal property. I can just do an assignment. I can just buy on a piece of paper say, I hereby put all, all my, you know, my, 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 my thermos, my folders, my whatever into my trust. That's easy. That's, that's sufficient. It's, it's assets that are property where, where it's evidenced by a titling document. So a vehicle has a title. Your, your car is not in your trust unless you go down to DMV and change the title. Your bank accounts, well, that involves a third party, a bank. You need to go down and retitle those bank accounts into the name of the trustee. And real property, what I think you all see the most, you've got to record that deed. And if I create my trust, it doesn't matter. I can put in the trust, Black Acre is in my trust. That's not an effective legal conveyance. It's the deed. And if I haven't executed and recorded that deed before I die, that real property is part of my probate estate and has to go through probate. There's exceptions for that because they're small estates. But, but the clarification is, can it just be in the trust or do you always have to have a trustee name associated with the title? And so I, I think it's probably okay if the if the deed said I conveyed it to the JM Polk Trust, but the best practice is to, to name the trustee. So upon the death but, of the individual, the trustee should go and change it once they have the trust and they can provide that and they can change the title. So if it was funded into the trust, right. And so, so let me go back to the example. So if, if I if I designate myself on the deed as trustee, I, J. Polk, convey to J. Polk as trustee, and Charlie's my successor, keeping the same people involved. After I die, he can simply, he doesn't have to record a deed anymore. He can simply record a certification of trust saying he is the successor trustee and that I die. And that's good enough. So I think that what we see most, like, my house is in a trust, and so it's in a trust in in, in the living whatever the revocable living trust, yeah. yeah for AH and CA, and so then I come in as AH and represent the trust to evict the landlord to evict the tenant, so then I don't it's my name because if I did the lease correctly, the lease is under the name of the trust. Right, it should be in the name right. of the trust. It should be in the name of the trust. Right, and so then the plaintiff is the trust, but I, my name is on that name of the trust. And so those are the people that we've now been allowing to appear because you are. As long as they're the, the trustee. And, 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 and well, was, this reminds me of a, right? of a client I had. I had a client who was acting in, in multiple fiduciary capacities. And I said, one day, one day I'm going to get you a hat. It's going to have multiple bills on it. You're going to rotate the hat. It's a personal representative of mom or dad's estate. Flip the hat, gar you know, guardian for mom. Last one's individually. And, 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 and it's where people forget. It's You almost mentally have to treat them as separate people. It's like multiple personality disorder kind of thing. You've got, you've got to say, I, I, I don't care that your name is Jane Doe and it's the Jane Doe Trust. 
I'm treating you as Jane Doe and this person is generically trustee of the trust. But here's the other thing. I could, I could create my trust today with my property. I could fund it, but say, Charlie's my trustee. The minute I do that, I have given up legal title. It doesn't matter that it's the J. Polk Living Trust. It doesn't matter that I'm the beneficiary. Mm. I do not own that property anymore. He owns it. Mm. In a fiduciary <laughs> capacity that gives him obligations to do certain things. So it sounds like we need to ask for more steps on what we can. Transfer. We don't get that many of them. We don't get that many, but transfer. Um, yes, yeah, we get we get enough to where we're the best practice. It just says transfer everything to security. <laughs> <laughs> Too complicated. Transfer. Happy to take more questions. So is it easier to become a conservator than a guardian? The question is, is it easier to become a conservator than a guardian? Okay, so like say the situation is there's a, a family and the, the, the mother dies. There's no father. There's a mother and there's two siblings. And one sibling is kind of crazy. The mother has no will. And the one sibling wants that crazy sibling to have something, have, you know, whatever. But they know they'll spend it all at once. So they want to maybe be the conservator over how they're able to get. For the, oh, for the brother? Yeah. So, so it's easier to become a conservative than a guardian, I think, in the sense of the standard of proof is less. It's preponderance of the evidence versus clear and convincing. And it's unable to manage your financial affairs versus unable to make communicate responsible decisions. Um, it gets into an, an interesting, I think, medical uh, discussion. And so often, in one of my criticisms, and so often, we leave out when we pass laws and rules, we leave out the, the psychologists and the neuropsychologists who yeah, I would love to hear their opinion on you know, what, what does that mean, unable to make or communicate responsible decisions concerning your person versus financial decisions. And I think it also depends on the complexity of one's estate. If someone's going to inherit a million dollars in all kinds of uh, sophisticated investments, someone may not have the ability to do that because of their IQ, their, their functioning, their education, versus if they're inheriting a thousand dollars in a bank account. Mm -hmm. And that's not to do with like, evictions or anything. So that's a really big, it depends. It's, yeah. it's a very long yeah. reason. Okay. Yeah. All right, any other questions in the room? And then, uh, Judge, uh, <clears throat> questions in the cyber world? And if you can turn around, they've seen the back of your head the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's the camera. I was wondering where the camera was. <laughs> so do we have any questions in cyber world? All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming to, to talk to us. And we'll look forward to your materials your outline, and then you were going to send an example uh, personal representative letter, maybe a guardianship letter to a conservator, maybe even a durable power of attorney. Whatever examples you want to send us would be wonderful. But let's uh, thank Jeff Polk. Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and take a 10-minute break. We can stop recording. We, we have a best practice that's